The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Well, I want to welcome you here today, church. Great to see you. We are in a series called I Am Because He Is. We're talking about identity and going to jump into part four in just a moment. I also just want to greet those of you joining us live online. Uh, so glad that you've joined us from all over South Florida, around the country, around the world. Uh, you are a part of our church as well. And so, church, some of you uh, may not be aware that, um, and a story that I was just recently made aware of that just was such an encouragement to me. As you know, um, there are many volunteers that come together to work not just for the sake of our church, but just even the online uh, live stream experience requires so many volunteers to be a part of. And recently, a volunteer stepped up uh, and is moderating the uh, live stream experience and uh, a woman named Mine. And what's so special about that is that she, when she stepped into that volunteer position, she became the single volunteer that lives the farthest away from her home church. Mine actually is serving here at her church, but she's serving from Norway. And so she has uh, become a part of, that's how she serves her church uh, each week, uh, leading the online experience, helping with the online experience. And so um, I just wanted to celebrate that. Mine, we are so proud of you. Um, we love you, part of our church, and thank you for serving and uh, here's the other thing I would say, uh, that I hope that is an encouragement to some of you. Some of you may be saying, you know what, I've wanted to take that step and take the opportunity uh, to find a way to use my gifts at my church. I've wanted to take, there's so many serving opportunities, I've wanted to seize one of those opportunities, but you know, it's just tough, I've got a lot going on. And so here's the encouragement um, from Mine's story. If Mine in Norway can find a place to use her gifts at her church... You can too. So maybe today is the day you just grab that Get Connected card from the seat back in front of you or out of your bulletin and uh, find one of those places and find out a little bit more how you can um, take, seize an opportunity to use your gifts here at your church. Um, we are in part four of our series, I Am Because He Is, and this passage is going to talk about what is truly precious. And I was thinking back a couple weeks ago, my wife Rebecca and I took our family or took our kids up to uh, North Carolina on a uh, family vacation. I grew up um, vacationing in, in North Carolina when uh, over the summer we'd go there uh, at some point and uh, love going into the mountains up in North Carolina. And I'd always seen, even when I was a kid, there were these places that you could go, they were for families, and you could do gem mining. And I'd always seen these advertisements for them. I had never done it. We never do it when, did it when I was a kid. I had never done it. And we just decided, you know what, we've got our kids, you know, um, almost six, four, and uh, now three months. And we're like, you know what, let's just take the older two gem mining and let's see what happens. And I, I really don't know what I expected, you know. Um, they give you that little, like, pan that's got, like, the, the grate on the bottom and you put, like, a scoop of dirt, you know, and... And you kind of like put it in the water and just kind of see what's left over. And I'm thinking like, you know, my mind, I'm thinking this is like, you know, 1849. And, you know, maybe we'll find a fleck of gold in there or something. And the first scoop, I was sitting there with my son. And the first scoop, um, as soon as I put it in the sand, I, I felt like stones in there. 
And I scooped out and I poured it in. And there's these stones. And my son's, you know, panning with it, my four-year-old. And he's like, look, Dad, a gem. And so we, we looked and it was a gem like this, you know, like a, a piece of quartz. And I'm like, wow, that was pretty good for like the first scoop, like right off the bat. We're like good at gem mining here, okay? And um, we, we had gotten a couple uh, of stones, and then the guy came by and said, well, here's a Ziploc bag, just if you happen to find any more gems. And it was like a little sandwich-sized Ziploc bag, and he put it in front of us. And so, like, I'm telling you, like, every, I mean, it was incredible. I mean, every single scoop we're getting, we're finding more of these little gems. And, and wouldn't you know, I mean, of all coincidences, we found the exact number of gems that fit perfectly in that Ziploc bag. I mean... What an unbelievable coincidence that was, okay? And so, like, I, I left kind of realizing, okay, might have been a setup, all right? Maybe. I'm not sure. Maybe next year I'll know for sure, okay? But might have been a setup. But my kids, I mean, they loved it. And, I mean, and at lunch later, you know, we're putting every single gem out. Oh, well, this says it's a smoky quartz, you know? And then this one's a parasite carbonite thing or whatever. And we're, like, going each gem, like, one at a time. And they were like precious uh, gems to them. And of course, I know they're just, you know, semi-precious um, stones. But they will remember that. I mean, in their minds, that day is when they hit the mother load. Like, you know, I, years from now, they'll be like, you remember the summer back in 2019? Gem mining was good to us that summer. That was like... That was, a good, that was a good experience. And so I know that even though those are these precious gems and they've got them in a special place in their room, like I know that they're really just by expert standards semi-precious. But I had the thought, what if like these sit in the kids, you know, some drawer for 10 years, 12 years, and then one day, you know, they just get cast aside. But what if the entire time what we didn't realize is one of those stems was, one of those gems was actually like a precious emerald. And it was stuffed in a drawer all this time worth a fortune. And we never knew about it. That'd be a shame. So this passage we're looking at talks about something that is very precious. And it's something that many of us have. Many here have, and others here can have. But the, the problem is we spend so much of our life not really appreciating how precious it actually is. And that affects even our identity. I want you to take a look at this passage. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been digging into this passage for the last several weeks and through this series. First Peter, we're going to look at verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 6. Here's what it says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to just see, we're going to just pause here for a second. There's a few other verses we need to look at today, but let's just start with this. He, he's describing something about us. He says, but he starts with this. He says, in this you rejoice. 
Well, what are we rejoicing in? And it goes back to what we were looking at last week. Last week, what it said is that because Jesus is risen from the dead, he died on the cross, but then he rose again from the dead. Because Jesus is risen, because that's who he is, who we are is we are heirs. Because he is the resurrected king, we have inherited heaven because of that. And we are, that affects our identity. We are heirs inheriting something that is beyond our ability to even comprehend. He says we rejoice in this. We rejoice as Christians, as those who've put our faith in Jesus. We rejoice at the prospect of what is coming in heaven. We rejoice in that. He says even though right now we're grieved by various trials. Trials and grief and suffering that has to be one of the most common things among human beings, right? It's funny how so often we, when we're, su- when we're struggling with something, we treat it as if it's this surprise, strange, alien thing when the reality is every single human goes through suffering. And in fact, later in the same book, First Peter, he says, why are you acting surprised? This isn't heaven. Suffering happens here. And he says, and we all know this. I mean, we've all faced different types of suffering. There's probably some way in which you're sitting here today going through a trial in some capacity, relationally, circumstantially, and physically, financially. There's some kind of trial that you are suffering in some capacity, something that's bringing fear, pain, anxiety, something like that in your life. It is common to the experience of human beings. So there's, he says, you are being grieved by trials. But I want you to notice a couple things he says by that. He says, though for a little while, in view of, of heaven that's coming and of our inheritance, no matter how long we suffer here on earth, it's a little while in comparison to heaven. Suffering for 100 years straight on earth is not even a millisecond in comparison to heaven. He says, you're suffering for a little while. And then he says, though for a little while, if necessary. Here's what's so powerful about that one little phrase. Because we have a Father who's in heaven, there is no suffering that we go through that is not absolutely necessary from Him. None of it's random. None of it's wasted. It's only absolutely necessary. We only bring discomfort and even pain into our children's lives if it's absolutely necessary. That's how He operates as a good Father. And here's what he says. He says, you're, even though for now, just for a little while, you're suffering. And then he says this, and this is so powerful. He says that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that gets refined in the fire, may be revealed. He's saying there's something in you that is unbelievably precious. Okay, um, about four years ago, there was a gemstone that went into auction at Christie's. And it was called the Oppenheimer Blue. We have a picture of it here. Uh, go ahead and pull up the Oppenheimer Blue um, gemstone. That is a um, vivid, called a vivid blue diamond. Makes a nice ring, right? Got like an anniversary coming up, okay? Just consider the Oppenheimer Blue, okay? It's just upwards of 14 carats, so um, decent size, all right? 
Um, you might need to save a little bit for it because when it was auctioned off, it was the, the, at the time the most um, expensive single jewel ever purchased at auction. Um, the new owner got that at the bargain price of $57.5 million. So um, if you're in the market for an anniversary gift, um, I don't know, maybe you'll come back up on auction. Okay, that is the Oppenheimer Blue. Now here's the thing about what's interesting about that vivid blue diamond. Even though since then larger gemstones have actually been purchased at auction for a greater price, that is the most expensive gem ever purchased, like price per carat. So what that made that stone then, and that is also the largest vivid blue diamond ever purchased at auction. So what that means is the most expensive type of gemstone is a gemstone like that, a vivid blue diamond. Here's what this passage is saying. There is something inside of you more precious. Here's what that looks like. You come to church on the weekend. And you show up here, maybe you showed up here today. And you're walking in just feeling weighed down by whatever that suffering and trial is that you're experiencing. Weighed down by anxiety. It kept you up last night. Weighed down by, by pain and tears and grief, by rejection, maybe by the circumstances, something going on in your career, something not happening in your career. And you're coming in weighed down by that trial, weighed down by that circumstance, weighed down by that frustration. And then we start singing. The music starts and, and you kind of stand up and there's people standing around you and you're just standing there and you really don't feel like singing. And you hear the, the song start and, and maybe the line's something like what we sang today where um, the, because Jesus rose from the dead, we have victory. And you hear that line and you say, Man, there is no victory anywhere in sight in my life right now. I mean, you look at my circumstances. You said anyone would look at my circumstances. There is no victory in my circumstances right now. And there's no logical, foreseeable way victory is going to enter into my life. My circumstances reveal no victory. You say, my, my brain can't even conjure up how victory would happen. And then you say, my emotions, I am not in a victorious place. Like, I'm just down. I'm sad. I'm frustrated. And you're there hearing the truth sung that Jesus is bringing victory in our life because he's risen from the dead. And you're standing there, and even though nothing in your life is pointing to victory, deep somewhere inside, there's a little ember that starts glowing. And something inside of you just decides to choose to start singing that truth. And you just start singing it. And then you hear the people around you singing it. And you realize they're humans going through their life too and they're clinging to the same truth you right now are trying to cling to. And you realize the Holy Spirit's doing the same work in them that they're doing in you and that ember gets a little brighter and maybe even sometimes in that moment God just touches down and gifts you in that moment and it just surges to this, this blazing joy in the midst of inexplicable circumstances. That little ember that can only be described as joy. Do you know what that is? It's faith. It's a miracle. 
you understand what this is, is, is pointing out to you? That moment when in the midst, when nothing would warrant that to spring up inside of you. That is something otherworldly happening inside your being. It's supernatural. It's a miracle. The miracle of faith in the midst of your suffering. Do you realize what he's saying here is that faith that's being kindled up is the most precious substance in the world. There is no, that surging through you, nothing compares to that. There's no vein of gold in some mine not yet discovered that can possibly compare to the substance of precious, genuine faith. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, God himself, supernaturally planted that in your soul. There's no precious gemstone. There's no vivid blue diamond buried and embedded in some rock that's not yet or may never be discovered in some mountain anywhere. There's nothing that compares with the precious miracle that is surging before you. Anything else is semi-precious compared to what the expert God Almighty says about precious faith refined by trials. Do you see what he's saying? There's a miracle that happens inside of you. You say, how does that miracle happens? Let's look what he says next. Jump down to verse 8. Here's what he says. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Did you notice what he says here? He's highlighting another miracle that happens in our hearts. If you want to find true, genuine Christians, if you want to see them be filled with joy, get them talking about Jesus. When Christians get together and they start talking about Jesus, joy, sometimes tears. Why? We love him. And the more we learn about him, the more we love him. We learn this story about Jesus where these self-righteous, pious religious leaders, envious of Jesus, in a power grab, trying to trap him, they drag some poor woman, apparently and allegedly caught in adultery, and bring her before Jesus. You want to talk about the chauvinism of that moment? the oppression in that moment, if she's caught in the act of adultery, where's the other party? And they overlook this gross injustice, drop her in front of the entire crowd in her shame. And can you imagine what it would be like to be this woman? Maybe the lowest moment of your life, the worst moment of your life, now on display in front of everyone? by people who just are after power and are using you and abusing you for that purpose and they throw her before Jesus and they say, Jesus, Moses told us to stone an adulteress. What do you say? Oh, we've got Jesus now. He can't come out from our impenetrable trap. It's ironclad. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say a word. He just gets down on a knee and he starts writing 
in the sand, and I think it was like an awkward pause and silence. Some scholars think he was just started writing the Ten Commandments. Maybe he got halfway up, and he, halfway through, he's looking at the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, his finger wrote on the tablets that Moses held. And he stands back up and he says, how about this? Whichever one of you have never committed any of these, you go ahead and start. And then we'll join in. Let the one who's not sinned cast the first stone. And then it says he gets down and he starts writing again. In other words, he's got like, I've, got, I've only gotten halfway through. Let me write the other half. And one at a time, I mean, the brilliance of Jesus. One at a time. It says the older ones first. Why? They've had more life experience. They've broken more of those. Drop the stones and they walk away. And Jesus gets done. The crowd's dispersed. And he stands up and he says to the woman, hey, um, oh, this is odd. Where did everybody go? I thought there was going to be some stoning or something happening here. Where did everybody go? He says, is there no one left to condemn you? What do you think was happening with this woman? Did she look into the eyes of this man? Was she, what, was she crying that he's at least removed her shame, but now wondering if he will now privately, because he's the only one standing there who has not sinned, will he then say, okay, I guess it's just me, and pick up a stone and stone her to death? What will the rabbi do, the good rabbi? And he's standing, she's standing there probably, part relief, part terror, tears brimming in her eyeballs. And he stutters this, these words of life. He says, neither do I condemn you. The only one who could. He says, now go and sin no more. Let the acceptance of holy God in the flesh spur you on to sinlessness. I mean, when you hear that story, doesn't it make you fall in love with your Jesus? You hear of his compassion, the only one who should be judgmental, the judge, and he chooses compassion for us because that's our story. For many of us, we came to church and there was, and of all people, we, we knew that there were people looking sideways at us and there's people that knew what we had done and we came to faith fell at the, at, the, at the feet of Jesus. We came to faith in tears, knowing and just trying to choose to believe that Almighty, Most Holy God accepted us. That's our story. No, we, we love Jesus. We love Jesus for his compassion. We love Jesus for his strength. I mean, he's not only the gentle Jesus that goes after the one lost sheep. He's Jesus of awesome power, strength, as we're struggling with our life and we're going through our, our sufferings and, and our spoiledness is coming out, as we're like, God, what are you doing up there? This is not how I mapped out my life. And we complain and we, we're frustrated with our sufferings, even though he literally promised there would be suffering in our life. And so we, we complain to God in our frustrations and then we look at our Jesus and we watch how he goes as a lamb to the slaughter without a word the one who did not deserve any suffering. 
and they arrest him unjustly and they punch him and they spit on him and they smack him and they lie about him and they curse him and they falsely uh, accuse him and then they drag him off and they throw him in prison and then they, then they, they bring him up and they drag him humiliated in front of the entire people and then they whip him some more. They whip him in such a bloody display within an inch of his life. They whip him. And then they place a crown of thorns on his head. And then they mock him with a robe. This is the one who wore the robes in the, in the throne room of heaven. And then they beat him with a rod. And then they, they, they drag him back out. They place this, this cross on his shoulders. And he has to have the dread of carrying the, the instrument of torture and execution. The very same piece of wood that his hands and feet will be maimed as they're nailed to it. And then he gets nailed to the cross and he's lifted up, stripped in humiliation. And he had this awesome strength to not utter a word. Do you know the strength of your Jesus? The man lifted his hand to nail his wrists into the cross. And the one who holds all things together, Jesus, is holding the molecules of his arm together to let him finish the job. That's the strength of your Jesus. We love him. Do you know we, there's a miracle that happens inside of us? Do you? The more we learn about Jesus, we learn that he's not just the Jesus of compassion and wisdom and strength. He's the Jesus of awesome power. Do you know what the Bible says is going to happen any second? What I'm about to read to you out of Revelation is going to happen maybe before we're done here this morning. This is what's eminent. Any second. It might happen before I'm done reading this passage. This is what it says in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe, on the robe of your Jesus, Christian, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That Jesus is going to be revealed any second, Christian. And did you hear what Peter says here? You love him. And you've never seen him. You realize how crazy that is? It's a miracle. We love him. We give our lives to him. He's the centerpiece of our existence, and we've never seen him. There is a miracle that has been done in your heart. Do you recognize that? 
Something otherworldly has gotten a hold of you and crazy things are happening. You love Jesus and you've never seen him. Some of you are sitting here and you're saying, look, I, I, you know, I, I see the excitement you have over this person, Jesus. I don't have that. It's because Jesus is not this person from history that, that lived and died and we just remember and memorialize. He lived and died and rose again. And we've not seen him, but we've encountered him. And there's some of you here that are sitting here and you've never encountered the risen Lord. And in a few minutes, I'm going to give you that opportunity. You're going to get an opportunity to encounter the risen Lord. I want to read just a couple more verses here of what it says. There's a miracle happening in your soul. But there's more that he says. And what he's about to say, the Bible doesn't quite communicate it quite like this anywhere else. This is unbelievable. 1 Peter 1, picking it up in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving, look at this, not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now it says one more thing. Look at this. Things into which, who does it say? Things into which angels long to look. It says two things here. The first thing is it says, it says prophets labored over trying to piece together who was coming. Labored. And the Holy Spirit gave a piece here and a piece there and they're laboring and striving and trying to figure out what were, they're putting their faith into what little was revealed here and there and there. Things like this. 700 years before the time of Jesus. Listen to this in, in Isaiah. Listen to what it says. Behold, this is Isaiah saying, God put this in his heart. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. He said, I, I don't know everything, but I know that one day God's servant will come and he's gonna be lifted up. How is he gonna be lifted up? He went on to say this a few verses later. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. These prophets are saying, look, uh, God revealed to me there's a servant coming and I'm just choosing to believe that one day it will come. A servant will come, but he is going to deeply suffer to, to heal our wounds. And here's what this says. I, maybe you've never thought of this before. They knew all of those pr prophecies and, and messages was serving you. 
not themselves. They were laying up something that we would get to take advantage of. Evidences of our Savior. These prophets, you know, they weren't so popular. They didn't get like a lot of attention and go on the speaking circuit and get a nice book deal. Most of them ran for their lives. Most of them imprisoned. Often tortured. Often executed. They suffered knowing they were serving you. Can you imagine that? Have you stopped to think about how they served you? It's like this in, um, in Spain. There's a cathedral um, that is so close to being finished, um, being built. And the name of the, the cathedral is La Sagrada Familia. And it, I mean, just about, we have a picture of it, I think, too. Um, it's just about to be completed. I mean, so close. It, it, it will be completed in just seven years. And I say just about to be completed because um, it was started in 1882. And the architect, uh, Antoni Gaudi, um, started it and he commented, they're even asking him and his generation, and he died in the 1920s. And they're saying, why is it taking so long? And he said, my client is in no rush. Meaning God, his client. And I want you to imagine, like, what does it take to be, to have that kind of vision to start building something that you and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren will never see completed? What kind of vision does that take? so that we as a generation will have the privilege of seeing it opened. Do you realize that's what the prophets did for you? Do you realize the, how precious the, this, these miracles that are happening? Do you realize how precious it is? And then it says one more thing, and it's almost, it's like a clincher. He says, this salvation is the thing to which angels long to look. You know, comparing the creation of angels to the creation of humans, angels are like way more impressive. I hate to break it to you, okay? No, it's about identity. I might have just crushed some of you. But just for the record, okay, angels are way more impressive. I mean, they can just appear places, okay? They're, they're perfectly holy. They stand in the presence of God. Some have angels. Sometimes they're shining. I mean, angels are, are way more powerful. I mean, they are far more impressive. In fact, every single time an angel appears to a human in the Bible, virtually without fail, their first words are, don't be afraid. <laughs> Imagine how old that gets as an angel. You're like, all right, I just got to deliver this message. Okay, look, don't forget, up. Oh, there's the screaming again. Okay, I'll wait until you're done. All right, I know it's hard. Imagine how old that gets. Okay, these angels are far more superior but there is one thing they will never, ever experience. Redemption. They will never get a chance to experience a side of God that you, Christian, have gotten to experience. His redemptive love. It says that you are, because you've experienced that redemptive love of Jesus, you are the envy of angels. 
And it says in this mysterious one little verse in the New Testament that one day we will rule over angels. Why? Because his redemptive love that he has poured on us, his recreative love on us has lifted us in Christ to be seated with Jesus at the right hand of God. Is that unbelievable? Does that that blow anyone's mind? Here's what I want you to see. Do you realize how precious your salvation is? Do you understand who you are, Christian, when we say, I am saved? Have we forgotten the gravity of that word? That's not a footnote in your life. That's not just the end of one chapter. That's not just the crescendo of your story. That is salvation is the crescendo of the entire story of the universe. All the universe has been preparing for God's redemptive work or looking back to God's redemptive work. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, you have the unbelievable honor and privilege of having your story wrapped up in the greatest part of the universe. Can we not just toss this word out callously, forgetting the gravity of what it means that you are saved. It's the greatest thing, the greatest thing that could happen to you in the history of all of creation. And you know, you can tell the value of a thing by what it costs. You know, an expensive diamond, we know its value because of what it costs to purchase it. Do you know what it costs for your salvation? This is who you are because this is who he chose to be. King of kings, Lord of lords, eyes aflame with judgment, the most glorious being, the, the, the Son of God, to whom all praise and glory is due, chose to be a servant, a suffering servant, because he is that, because that priceless cost was expended. That's who you are. You know, the interesting thing about how identity works is identity shapes activity. What we see, who we see ourselves to be in our identity, that shapes then what we do and how we live and how we spend our time and our resources. Identity shapes activity. Let me demonstrate what I mean by that. We all have different elements of what that makeup or identity. You know, you have executive or you have teacher or you have a stay-at-home mom or you have or whatever educator, you have that piece. You have maybe um, daughter or son or wife or husband or parent or friend or sibling. You have all these pieces of your identity. And we put them all to make, put them all in place to make ourselves who we see ourselves to be. They're all pieces of our identity. But how we prioritize those pieces shapes our activity. So if I see myself as parent first and husband second, that'll play out in my marriage and my marriage will suffer. If I can keep those in their right priority, 
marriage first, parents second, it actually makes me a more healthy parent. And especially because one day those kids are going to move out of the house and this is all that I'm going to have left is the marriage. See how you prioritize those? The identity shapes activity. How about this? If, I'm, um, if you're executive first and parent or husband next, you'll put your energies first and foremost, your time and your energies into your career to the neglect and harm of your family. My identity if my identity is pastor first and dad or husband second, I'm unbiblical. My priority is my wife and my children than my role as a pastor. That's the, that is the right order. And how we order and prioritize those pieces of our identity shapes our activity. So let me ask this question. Where's this in the priority order? Is it, well, I'm executive, I'm, I'm, or maybe I say I'm successful executive, or I'm successful educator, or I'm successful whatever it is, and then, you know, I'm husband, and, or then I'm parent, and then husband, and then athlete, and then, you know, I've got this hobby and this, and then also, oh, yeah, I'm saved, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm religious. Do you realize what you forget and you have left in a drawer? The most precious thing about you. You are saved. That is the first Peace of your identity. Christian, can you go back through your identity order and remind yourself, first and foremost, you have been honored by the most precious substance being expended for you. That's why all these unbelievable miracles are happening inside of you, producing the most precious thing, faith, the thing that prophets and whole generations led up to serving you so you could, the thing they were putting their faith towards, you can put your faith back towards. Things that angels envy. That is who you are first before anything else. Release that into your life. You are saved. Do you understand the gravity and how precious that is? Release that in your life. You know, maybe because today you're going you're, you're gonna to hear this, but tomorrow you're going to wake up and you're going to go to work. You're going to lead your families. Maybe you do what we've been doing throughout the series. You just say, look, I need to remind myself every single day you get a dry erase marker and you write on your mirror, I am saved because he is something. He is a suffering servant. That is who I am first beyond anything else. But there's one particular group I want to speak to. There's some that my, my heart is heavy for that are sitting here. There are some of you that are sitting here and you come to church regularly. You would call yourself a Christian for many years. But the honest reality is, you may act like a Christian, you may do the things that Christians do. The honest reality is you've never had an actual encounter with the living Jesus. In a few weeks, we're going to have a baptism celebration. And uh, almost every time we do a baptism, there is uh, stories like this. People say, like, I sat in church most of my life, and I never actually had encountered Jesus. But when I encountered Jesus, it changed everything. You know, our vision as a church is to see South Florida transformed by the power of the gospel. And what that's going to take is a gospel revolution happening in our hearts and spreading. 
And so the, if the gospel is not becoming alive in us, if we've not had that encounter with Jesus, there's no way we're going to see that revolutionize our city. And so maybe you need to have that encounter, just like so many of those say when they get baptized. Some of you need to say, look, it's, I've, I've, you're coming to the place you're realizing it's not just going through the motions religiously. I need to have a faith encounter with Jesus and watch, watch him bring about this miracle of faith inside of me, drawing me to himself, leading me to simply surrender to the one who died for me and rose again. The only way to find salvation is through Jesus. You can't find it any other way. And some of you need to have an encounter with Jesus today. And I want to give you that opportunity. I don't want to wait another second without giving you that opportunity because Jesus could return at any second. Seize this opportunity today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? You might be watching here in person or maybe you're watching online. And I want to lead you in that moment where you can just take that step of faith. You say, what do I have to do? It's just accepting the gift of salvation. You're just in faith saying, Jesus, I'm taking that step. I want to encounter the risen Lord. Take that step in faith. Faith is where you take a step of action based on your beliefs. Just like the chair that you sat in today without making sure that it could hold you, you just sat on it in faith. You're taking that step today in faith. You're just saying, Jesus, I don't have it all figured out, but I'm choosing to put my faith in you. Would you take that step today? So here's what I want you to do. If you want to take that step of faith with no one looking around, everyone's got their heads bowed, bowed and eyes closed, but if that is you today, here's what I want to ask you to do. With no one looking around, if you want to take that step and encounter the risen Jesus, then I want you just to look up here at me. No one else is looking around. I see you. I see you. I see you. Anybody else who say, I want to take that step, just look up here at me for a second. Amen. If that's you and you want to take that step of faith, I'm talking to you right now. If that's you, then all you're simply doing in faith is surrendering to Jesus, saying, here's my life. I believe you died and rose again to pay for my sins and save me. I'm just, I'm surrendering. This is the moment. And if you're ready to do that, then go ahead and bow your heads. And I'm going to lead you in a silent prayer. Make this your silent prayer to God. Say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for saving me at such great cost to yourself. I believe you died to pay for my sins. I believe you rose again from the dead. And I believe I will spend eternity in heaven. And I believe I am saved from this point forward because of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.